There's a positive stress in this. Not all stress is negative. There's a good kind of stress. And that stress can be described as that space between where we are and where we want to be. Where we are or where we want to go as athletes. Or, in other words, that place between our comfort zone and the fringe of our discomfort zone. So that is the entire concept of a coast ride seven days as difficult as it was, or of the challenge week, that space between comfort and discomfort, but on the fringe edge of discomfort. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM coach, and this is episode 150. The Weekly Word Podcast is an ultra-endurance resource. On this podcast, we talk more than just training details. Each episode, I try to dive into all the aspects of ultra-endurance. Those include recovery, nutrition, mindset, and sleep. Yet an important distinction of this podcast is that I look to bring out the best athletic version in my athletes. Of course, via the training, nutrition, recovery, and mindset, but I also try to connect the athlete with their inner landscape. As I read the other day, the mastery of our physical craft is a reflection of our inner growth. And while mastery is a far off place for all of us, I believe our effort towards achieving any sort of mastery will spur that inner growth as well. And while many of you might have not signed up for an ultra endurance event for those reasons, I still believe the benefits of this training will bleed into other areas of our lives, our daily life, family, and professional. Daily time to care for your mind and your physical self can open doors. The best version of yourself, the creative, energetic, patient, joyful, and grateful side comes into play. Daily self-care in the form of training, nutrition, sleep, and mindset allows you to create from your inner world versus merely consume from the external world. It allows you to be more the author of your life story versus merely a reader in it. I wish to help endurance athletes discover this, this version of ourselves, or more of it, through daily training that challenges you physically as well as mentally, to spend time with your thoughts and hearing what your inner voice has to share. Endurance coaching can and should be a transformative experience for you as an athlete and as a person. It can actually change the trajectory of your life and relationships. The Weekly Word Podcast is an addendum to this. Advice, observations, and tips to support human development along with athletic development. That's effectively my job as a coach and what I try to convey in this podcast. Your human and athletic development played out in the athletic arena, but overlaying into our daily lives. So it's been a few weeks since I've recorded a podcast. Well, I've been on the road with the Coast Drive, and I had an athletic consult that I put on the podcast last week or two weeks ago. I definitely wanted to deliver on a podcast this week that captures what we're currently doing. So I would love to recap the Coast Ride for all of you. And I also want to talk about what my athletes are doing this week called the Challenge Week why we're doing a challenge week, what it means, and how it's different than a typical challenge week that you might have heard about or thought about over the last year, given how we're in a pandemic and we're limited in events and activities and adventures. 
So to jump right in, let's recap the Coast Ride. What is the Coast Ride? Well, the Oregon Coast Ride, different than the California Coast Ride, is a little bit longer. It's seven days, it's 800 miles, and a lot more climbing. Not necessarily long, continuous climbs, but choppy coastline, sudden climbs. It makes it more challenging. The distances are greater each day, as well as the total distance and the number of days makes the Oregon Coast Ride a little bit more rugged, difficult, and challenging. But it's seven days of truly cycling all day. And there's a lot of value in that process of getting up, riding your bike all day, and going to bed, of course, eating and something and so forth at the hotel or at a restaurant in the evening. But I will dive into what that means mentally and psychologically a little bit later. So how is it done? Well, we basically ride our bikes around 130 to 140 miles a day. Some days 125, another day it was 115, but it always is around 115. The longest day is 142. The shortest day I think is 112. It works in that we have support vehicles that have food and drink and tools and first aid and some of our equipment and bags in it. So if you need to put on more clothing or shed some clothing because the day is heated up, it's all available in the vans. We had two vans with us for our 12 riders this time. There are designated points along the way. So again, in order to make each day a successful endurance event, practically, because not only riding 115 to 140 miles a day is quite a challenge, what makes that coast ride an endurance event is many days in a row of doing this distance. And so it becomes important that SAG is there to support you so that you can be successful, not only on one day or two days, but when you string together six or seven days. Having food and drink available, having support available, never being too hot, never being too cold, never being caught in the elements unexpected, having that available, not worrying about any type of mechanical or flats because there's plenty of gear close by is important for a successful week like this. It's already challenging enough physically, so having support and getting that worry off our proverbial shoulders is an important component for being successful. Being topped off and fed makes the afternoons and the rest of the ride later in the day more successful. We're not at a deficit. You get in, you can then take good care of your body because you've been fueled and hydrated most of the day and go on to sleep, recover, and do the same thing the next day. The sag stops were about every 25 to 30 miles. So you would go about 90 minutes, sometimes two hours based on the climbing without support around you, or not around you, but <clears throat> without a designated sag stop. That was enough to have on your bike, right? Your two water bottles and some food in your pockets and so forth. Of course, they're always revolving around us. So if something is up, they're less than two, three minutes away. We've had a variety of flat tires or mechanicals and the mechanic was there within two, three, four, five minutes in most cases. The group was pretty strong. It was pretty remarkable. We never spread that far apart. No, we don't ride as a group of 12. They definitely spread apart in groups of two or three or some solo riders. The capabilities of the group 
was really something to be admired because we were never more than 30 or 45 minutes apart. And and for a 112 mile day, that's quite significant. That means we're all pretty similar in ability. Of course, the sag stops mean we stop for a few minutes, eat some food, top off, um, you know, recover a bit, eat some solid food probably as well. That We had all kinds of different choices from bars and chews, of course, to sandwiches and peanut butter pretzels and chips and salty foods and fruit. Some people requested certain types of food, so the SAG team would have those in the van available for them. Again, the purpose of SAG is not necessarily comfort on my coast rides or at my training camps. It's more a question of safety, of course, first. And secondly, supporting you to be successful in your endurance endeavor. And the endurance endeavor in this case is riding your bike all day. You have to figure that when you ride 140 miles, 125 miles, 130 miles, that's six, seven, seven and a half, eight hours in a saddle. So with the stops, you're talking about nine-ish hours out there. So when we roll at seven in the morning, the earliest we're getting in is four o'clock, 3.30, four o'clock in the afternoon. That's an all-day ride. Then that first hour, you're busy when you're at the hotel. You're busy replenishing, rebuilding, and restocking, for lack of a better term, for the next day. That means getting your equipment in order. That means getting your gear in order. That means getting your body in order that it can quickly recover, eat some dinner, get some rest, and wake up and do it again the next day. In addition to the 125 miles, you have to keep in mind, there's also five, six, seven, ten thousand 10,000 feet of climbing every day. So it's a challenging week, but again, something I was very proud of all the participants and how they did because it's a rugged, uh, remote, long coast from Oregon, from Portland to San Francisco, and they did extremely well. So why do a coast ride? Following through on an event this year was very important to me. We had a lot of races cancel. We've had my training camps cancel. A lot of people have had their trips and their own personal events and endeavors canceled. So I wanted to really make an effort and stay on it with offering this coast drive. Was I going to force it? No, that's why I canceled an earlier version. The window had opened up and while 10 fewer people could make it, which is totally fine and I get that, we all have lives to live. The fact that we had 12 riders who were still able to experience this and really extend their soul and their legs and stretch their legs and push themselves and find themselves alone for three, four, five, six hours staring at a beautiful coast while they're riding their bikes from point to point was important. A shared experience like this of so many, in this case 12, experiencing this coast for the first time. People are itching to validate their fitness. And an 800-mile bike ride with 45,000 feet of climbing in seven days is just enough of a challenge to knock that dust off our souls. I like to call it that. We, we all have that in our soul, our endurance self. As you all know, I'm a big believer in that. And an event like this, 
seven days where you're really asking your body to really step out of its comfort zone is a powerful reminder as well as a powerful cleaning tool to knock that dust off of our soul again and to really feel alive, to feel connected, to exhale and find the endurance athlete within. It always takes a few days to find that endurance athlete again. And it's remarkable, independent of me saying this and believing this and living like this, it's remarkable to me how every single time, every athlete, basically 100% of them, say similar to me. It takes a few days to sort of reconnect with the endurance athlete, whether it's at a training camp, at a coast ride, at a multi-day running event, and then a different glow and pride and joy comes about them. And when it appears, it's a clear display of the athlete, the endurance athlete within all of us. The other main input from this coast ride was the shared experience. We haven't had a lot of shared experiences this year. What makes a shared experience special is it's more memorable, powerful when you're sharing it with others new friendships, new adventures shared with others. When we don't know the others, it requires growth and patience. These were all athletes along that didn't know each other. Like a few of them knew each other, but as a group, there was enough new faces and new characters and new people that in getting to know each other, we're growing, we're expanding ourselves and we're showing sort of tolerance and human interaction. And I love that. Combine that with amazing views and amazing experience, testing our physical and mental side every day that accelerates that growth of getting to know somebody. It's another added benefit of these coast rides. Sharing the struggle, the difficulty of these seven days makes the experience so much more immersive. And of course, the scenery, the landscape, the environment was powerful, but it is always more meaningful when you have someone else you know who saw those views, experienced that window of time with you. While solo adventures are also meaningful, they hit a different nerve. You're in, your, in yourself more. You're in your head. You're in your body a little bit more. You're sort of the observer, but you have no one to share it with. So a shared experience that you know somebody else felt similarly or experienced those same views or that powerful day or that climb or those giant redwoods is meaningful in hindsight. We look back and are proud of that. We look back and think about how cool that adventure was because there were other people there. The riders did amazing. Exhaustion was apparent, yet all stayed safe for the most part. We did have a crash. Same person crashed twice. Seeing those crashes, because I was with that person when it happened, and how uninjured he was, was really remarkable and a testament to his cycling ability. And the sag was crucial for such big days. Seven days, whereby each stage was longer than a tour stage, Yes, that has to be factored in. There aren't any tour stages that are back-to-back 130 mile, 125 mile, 142 mile, 117 mile days. In the tour, you definitely have a 100 plus mile day, but then the next day is shorter or easier or shorter and easier. (laughs) So these 
are longer than a tour stage, and it makes this week quite an accomplishment for all these riders. I personally love this ride because of the difficulty of it. The added days, the extra fatigue, and the raw nature of the Oregon coast versus the California coast. Everything is just a bit more remote between our morning departure town and our evening arrival town. On the California coast, you're passing through a lot more towns and populated places. On the Oregon coast, you're going 60, 70 miles between any type of populated place or 30, 40 miles before seeing any type of homes or dwellings, I should probably call them. So it is a different vibe on this coast. A full day of cycling, nothing more, nothing less, just turning over the pedals and simplifying each day into the physical and mental work that needs to get done. You wake up, get work done, eat, go to bed, repeat. And again, that knocks the dust off our soul because the simplicity in that process brings us back to something really primal in my opinion, simple task-oriented days connected with our physical self outdoors in nature and then being complete with that fueling ourselves as in eating and going to bed peacefully rest a good restful night's sleep repeat and after a few days of doing this everybody's personality and character changes there's a different glow there's a different meaning to the day the importance of work and emails and the bustle and hustle of life is sort of left behind and again we go back to that really deep down simple task of i have one thing to do today get up ride my bike to the finish point and be done and i i really whether it's on the california coast ride or the oregon coast ride i can recognize this in athletes as they sort of embrace this more and more and the glow and the positive energy and the vitality and the joy bubbles up more and more in them for the simplicity of it despite them getting fatigued now there's also once we cross a certain threshold that bubbliness goes away because fatigue grows even more and then we need to be careful it's a question of then being tired and our reactions and our ability to make sound decisions on the bike or running or whatever activity it is we're doing becomes compromised and so i do pay close attention to that on the coast ride especially especially on this one because the sixth and seventh day the fatigue really adds up even for very experienced riders and very fit riders so that's when the sag teams become a little bit more observant and i give them all some guidance on you know keep an eye out for fatigue today and so forth but we had a great coast ride great weather great experience great adventure great camaraderie great joy and with laughs and um happiness is is probably the right word the opportunity to do something from an adventure standpoint from an endurance adventure standpoint this year and stretching the legs and really getting a chance to validate our fitness I'm already sending out emails for the California coast ride, which is in January. So it's 
coast ride to coast ride pretty quick here the turnaround which i mean is relative right november december two months off and then into the next coast ride but overall it's just a, a, a an event i really enjoy putting on i'm a little bit different than others i'm very uh passionate out there when putting on a coast ride um very excited and happy and vocal <laughs> and i show my passion and my excitement for this in a very external way others maybe not so much but again that's the fun of coaching knowing that athletes will go home and in about a week from the finish meaning a week after being done with the coast ride they will close their eyes and look back and the memories and the views and the experience and the adventure and the trials and tribulations they went through will have a certain spark and glow within them and will bring about a smile i know that and will probably bring about a smile for the rest of their lives it's that fun and meaningful of a week so i got back from the coast drive and it was quickly a change in prep or it was quickly a refocus towards the aim challenge week the challenge week came up in september when a variety of athletes were really struggling to validate their fitness they weren't coming on the coast ride as well as the coast ride had just been canceled because of fires and air quality and evacuations so i wanted to find something that will capture their attention that they can challenge themselves that they can see how their hard work has paid off their consistency of training their approach being resilient through this year so that was the main reason for the week but it evolved over the last few weeks into something different because i also wanted to challenge everybody in a different way I wanted to challenge them out of their comfort zone and create a new understanding of what they're capable of despite not having perfectly prepared for it. So that's how the challenge week evolved into um, something that was way beyond what they were thinking, they being the athletes, of doing. So we reviewed in many ways what they had planned to do, and I asked them to do more. And there was a lot of fear and intrepidation around it because, again, we didn't train for the challenge week. We did our usual training and dropped in a challenge week right in the middle of it, something where if you're running typically 10 miles on a weekend, we're doing a 40 or 50 mile run that week if we're typically doing some triathlon training we're doing an ironman a half ironman and olympic distance in seven days if you're typically doing a 30 mile bike ride and some running i was having everybody do or having people do a 100 mile bike ride with some running and this is for seven days in a row so the challenge originally started with a triathlon challenge whereby you would swim 2.4 miles the first day, bike 112 miles the second day, run a marathon the third day, swim 1.2 miles the fourth day, bike 56 miles the fifth day, run 13.1 miles the sixth day, and on the seventh day, do an Olympic distance triathlon all at once tried to set up similar hours as to what that 
adventure would take for running. So we scheduled a 50 miler, a 50K and a marathon all in a seven day window. How you set that up is up to you, but it has to be completed in a seven day window. And finally, we had the cycling challenge, which was a hundred mile bike along with achieving 29,029 feet of elevation gain in the remaining six days, um, whether after the 100 mile uh, century or at some point during that week with a century built in, you couldn't use the elevation gain of the century towards Everesting. Those were the different challenges. And from there, individualizing it for certain athletes to, of course, keep in mind health and injury, as well as time availability. Some athletes had to do it a week prior. Some athletes are doing it the week after just because of life. But about 32, 33 athletes are doing it the designated week, which is October 24th to the 31st. So in seven days, getting many of those adventures, distances, challenges done. Like I was mentioning, there was an antsiness in the athletes. They were wanting to do something outside of their comfort zone, but didn't know what. And so doing it together as a community around the world, from Qatar to Europe, to Istanbul, to Italy, to Denmark, to Africa, to the United States, to South America, there's athletes doing it everywhere. I'm having weekly Zoom calls, not weekly, every few days, Zoom calls in order to check in with them, how they're doing, how they're feeling, what they're observing, and of course, cheering them on virtually. Many athletes have communicated with each other and been supportive of each other, again, knowing that it's out there. But the funny thing is the fear prior to this as a collective. And the fear shows itself in different ways. Some are anxious, nervous, fearful. Others are quiet or hesitant or observant. But across the board, I think most were surprised with how far out of the normal training I had them go because it doesn't fit my profile of gentle progression, incremental steps, continuing to move forward. But there's a big focus here of the challenge week. And that is to do something way beyond what we thought possible, way beyond what we usually do on the far edge of what we deem possible. Part of everything I believe in us as for us as endurance athletes, and it's hitting a big shift. That big shift is a huge jump in volume, pushing them beyond anything most have ever done. Most have not run 50 miles at one time, let alone a 50K and a marathon in the same week. Learning from that what you are capable of. And for those more experienced in this, to show them straight out of training what they can do. There's no resting and tapering for this for any of the athletes. Many of the athletes still had strength training and intervals and big training weeks prior. And then Boom, hitting this. And that big shift is physical, but it's also mental a lot to overcome. With that, though, comes this really, really powerful new sensation that we're already seeing two, three, four days in, five days in, 
of the athlete recognizing they're capable of so much more. Now, of course, this week is an unusual week. They've had about six weeks to prepare for it, not necessarily physically, but more logistically, letting family and work know that this week is going to be overwhelming from a scheduling and hour standpoint, um, having work hopefully lined up to maybe go in a day later, uh, go in later a, a day or two that week or letting family know that this week is not only going to be fatiguing, stressful, logistically difficult, but also that we're going to be pretty cranky come later in the week. Big training week, big challenge week, something way beyond. (laughs) It doesn't even fit a progression. It's just this huge column of sudden volume in the midst of their regular training progression. But the learning from the week kicks us further down the road in our endurance journey and learning it's dramatic. But most importantly, the confidence and validation that this training carries is so much more long lasting. Athletes are going to kick out of this week knowing, learning, observing, feeling, having huge aha moments of, wow, if I put my mind to something and prepare for it, logistics, let's say, I can do so much more than I thought I could. So then they will take this through what we call the dark months, right? November and December and January going, that experience showed me I'm well on my way. I'm well on the path of endurance athletics. And quite honestly, for most athletes completing this week, it's a 100% underlying aligning validation, solidification that they are absolutely ultra endurance athletes. You do an Ironman, a half Ironman, an Olympic distance, all in a seven day window. You do a 50 mile or a 50K and a marathon all in one week. You do a century ride and 29,000 feet of elevation gain on your bike in the other six days in one week you're an ultra endurance athlete. All of these events add up to about 20-ish hours of training, 20 plus hours of training for the week. That's a huge week, despite family, despite work, despite other responsibilities. That is truly the definition of being an endurance athlete and not having gone pro in the sport that we're doing, but in something else. It's been fun to observe. It's been fun to watch. But again, having that specific outcome in my mind as the coach for all of this was very, very meaningful to me because I'm excited to see the positive effects for so many of this. Of course, there's close monitoring of injury and adrenal fatigue and what the next few weeks bring. That will require truly coaching from a physiological standpoint, from a mindset standpoint, from a slowing down standpoint, recovery and stress reduction standpoint. But this week, the benefits way outweigh the risk of that. The other aspect that I talked to the athletes about, and it's important for everybody, for for even if you want to do your own challenge week, this week is a lot about what we physically can do. And the logistics and how if we communicate effectively, we can get it all done in a week. Now, is it sustainable? No. Can we do it for one week and really surprise ourselves? 
Yes. But as I said to my athletes, this week is just as much about working in, inside of us, within us, our mental capacity and our mental growth than it is about working out. This week is about working in and working out. Not only fitness gains, but huge mental gains. The complexity of making it all work along with overcoming this negative self-talk that people will have this week. The fatigue, the doubt, and the constant voice of needing to do other things is a huge growth aspect. What does that mean? Well, we're all in that negative self-talk at times. Well, we question, should we be doing this? I should be doing something else. We start justifying. We start wanting to be pulled out of the present moment and start thinking of the future of what we should be doing, what we ought to be doing. And should and ought are very negative effects of being in the present moment and executing to the best of our ability what we had committed to do for today or for this week. The important thing there is to say no. This week was planned and we know we can do it. We planned it. We prepared for it. We don't need to create a story, a narrative now that we ought or should be doing something else. The challenge principle is part of this mindset to do something way out of your comfort zone and training progression, but also mentally to deal with that pressure, that talk coming up within us, that negativity that wants to push back of you having this big growth moment. And that's why this week is also about working in and not just only about working out. There's a huge mental growth aspect. Being on the far edge of what you perceive as being possible. Don't feed the doubt, the negativity, the self-pity, the inferiority. Instead, this week of mentally getting stronger on working in is about feeding power, strength, positivity, joy, curiosity, confidence, and being in the moment. Each day is a moment to work on that, to just be as it was on the coast drive. Wake up, ride your bike, eat, go to bed. This week is about just being an athlete all day. Wake up, do what you have tasked yourself for weeks to do, go to work, go to bed, eat, whatever order that is in, and repeat. It's one week and you can do it. To just be, just to be an athlete in its full, glorious, powerful, rawest form. Just doing, having a set task, set of tasks, every day simplifies our process and allows us to not overthink. Go out and do. This week was also important about learning fueling and hydration and recovery and sleep. You're not going to make it through this week without properly taking care of those aspects. Fuel, not just during, but post. And so all the athletes got a handout, a cheat sheet with a variety of strategies and instructions and checklist to go through every day to ensure they're going to bed, hopefully early enough 
to get up the next day and have another successful day to layer upon layer upon layer of positive growth experience. How to manage the body and the mind. Be successful in all aspects of being a better athlete today than yesterday, next week than this week. Important for everybody was that we take off expectations for this week. And that is important with staying in the present moment and just doing as well. Without a wattage expectation, without a pace expectation, without a speed expectation, without a time expectation for each day, hopefully and clearly I'm seeing in the athlete, in the athletes, it allows them to let go and just be in the activity. There's no effort level we're looking for. From that, everybody is having a lot more positive experience. And those that have actually pushed the envelope of trying to hold a certain pace or Ironman goal pace or what they want to run in their next 50K, etc., have all come to recognize their mistakes. Because day after day after day means you've got to be very careful and just do said activity versus putting expectations on it, then your experience is going to be completely different too, because you might bring on that judgment of I didn't achieve X, or I wasn't able to hold Y, or my pace wasn't this, which automatically brings on some sort of self-evaluation. Whereas the volume of the week is the accomplishment, the hours of the week along with life work, family, community, not put on hold is the accomplishment as well as the big week of volume being so far out of the norm without resting for it, without training for it is the big accomplishment. So you take all those accomplishments, put them together and realize that's so much more powerful than trying to hold on to a number or to a pace or to a desired outcome like that, which many of them, the athletes I had send me their commitments prior. And by doing that, we could set the desired outcome more on the process, more on the journey, more on what we will see, we will learn, even though we didn't know what the learning will be yet until you get through that week versus I am trying to run this pace. I'm trying to get this far. I'm going to try to achieve it like this. There's no expectations. We don't want to create obstacles. We don't want to self-sabotage, as many of us tend to do, by putting numbers, wattages, values, average pace around that. There's other weeks for that. There's simulations for that. There's races for that. There's training for that specifically. But that's not what the challenge week was. It's a reflection also this week of our overall self. Keep to the task. Don't add a story or complexity. What might be a quite simple task or thing to execute. Oftentimes I see this, whether as a coach in my children or with people around me, a simple task gets complicated by our story, our narrative that we self-sabotage the simple task. And now all of a sudden it became something a lot more complicated than it needs to be. So that was the challenge week. 
Which brings me to something that I have learned over the last two, three weeks, and I thought I would share with all of you. And that is the relationship, the common theme between the Coast Ride and the Challenge Week. The Challenge Week and the Coast Ride took us out of our comfort zone. They added a mental and physical stress to what is usually the rhythm of our weeks. There's a positive stress in this. Not all stress is negative. There's a good kind of stress. And that stress can be described as that space between where we are and where we want to be. Where we are or where we want to go as athletes. Or, in other words, that place between our comfort zone and the fringe of our discomfort zone. So that is the entire concept of a coast ride seven days as difficult as it was, or of the challenge week, that space between comfort and discomfort, but on the fringe edge of discomfort, because we're on the far edge of that reality. When you physically push your body beyond its present limits, it responds to the increased demands made upon it in familiar ways. You experience that shortness of breath. Your heart rate races. You sweat. You get tired, fatigued. You may, may even feel sore and achy. If you continue to push your body, your body will eventually adjust to the new physiological level required of it. That new normal. That this is what we're doing. I'm trying to find steadiness in it. So therefore, it is now familiar to me. I am able to adjust, adapt, and make this the normal, thereby increasing your physical capacity. That's the whole concept, basically, of training. Stress plus adaptation with recovery. In this way, we set down new neural pathways while increasing our physical skills. That's where the mental aspect comes in. Our ability to push ourselves mentally with those new pathways. Mentally, we can train ourselves to be comfortable with being uncomfortable as well. That's what the challenge week is working in and working out, working mentally and working physically, moving out of your comfort zone through experiencing this good kind of stress is a continuous incremental process of getting familiar with your discomfort zone having a relationship with it. It's not like you get to a certain level and then stay there. Things are always either moving forward or backwards. They're not staying static. We're not that type of being. If you are comfortable where you are and you just want to stay comfortable, that's fine. But that isn't a way to pursue growth, excellence, wisdom, you can't pursue wisdom without being willing to get uncomfortable. You can't pursue athletic excellence without willing to get uncomfortable. You can't experience growth, which the whole term implies without being uncomfortable. You have to ask yourself with regularity, can I do better than I'm doing now? That's what the challenge we surprise so many with. I am capable of so much more than I thought carrying that message forward, it allows the athlete to then say, can I be doing more than I'm doing now? Can I train at a level above where I am now? Do I have a level of self-talk that limits me to do more than I'm doing now? A lot of the negativity, the anxiety, the questioning prior to the challenge week was around, oh, I'm not sure if I can. Well, not until you try, 
Not until you're out there doing can you have that opinion. Now, if you kick out of the week and say, I tried, I gave it five days in a row and by the sixth day I couldn't do any more. Well, the positives and the learning and the growth from that is so much more powerful than making that judgment call prior or limiting our growth or limiting our challenge that week prior to having even tried. Put me in the arena and then that way I can learn whilst in the arena versus sitting in the stands and wondering if I could do that. I seem to think I'm capable of doing that, but I'm going to stay here in the comfort, the safety of the stands versus putting myself out there in the arena. When you're in the arena, it's not about focusing on what you can't do. It's about identifying where you want to be, focusing on that, and pushing yourself in that direction. That's you moving from the stands into the arena with confidence, with knowledge, with an open mind. The reality is that if you want to achieve a new level, if you want to change, i.e. grow, you have to take some risks. And walking from the stands into the arena, into the arena, excuse me, and being in the arena carries some risks. But you have to push that envelope. You have to be willing to cross that threshold, crossing the threshold back to the hero's journey. What I love about getting out of our comfort zone and creating a new normal is that now continues to remain in front of us and continues to be further out upon the horizon. That means now with our new normal, we're moving forward as we continue to chase a new normal, a new horizon a new outcome, a new challenge week, right? I can't do this same challenge week with most of the athletes. They've done it. They see that they're capable of doing it. So the growth of it next time will be fractional compared to the growth this time because they know the outcome is achievable. And so being present, being a little bit fearful, being curious, being open-minded, will not be as available because it's achievable. It's right there in front of you. It's a quote I love from the author Wayne Dyer. Um, he wrote the book, Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life. He writes, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. If you change the challenge week, the way you look at it, then the things you look at change. Well, you're not going to look at those distances, those accomplishments the same way once you've done them. You've changed the way you look at that week. If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. That's the new normal. That's growth. That's what a challenge week accomplishes for us. That's what the coast ride accomplishes for many and knocking the dust off the soul of being the endurance athlete we're capable of being because we kick out of both of those weeks with a new perspective of what we're capable of. Less limiters, more possibility. All right, so that was the Oregon coast ride and the 
current AIM Challenge Week, and I'm excited to share with all of you some of the insights that athletes have gained from this week. That'll take a few days, maybe even weeks to sort of suss out and work through with the athletes because many times it's hard to recognize all the things you've achieved by looking back at the week because we're automatically focused on looking forward and what's next. And with that comes a, with that comes a challenging and difficult decision approach for many. And that is your ability to let go of the fitness that you've just experienced, that you've just built. Many of the athletes coming back from the coast ride, you know, you just rode 800 miles in seven days, give that a few days off, a couple of days easy, you're ready to explode with cycling power and fitness and overall gains. But it's November. There are no events right now. There, Well, not even right now. There are just no events really to apply that fitness. Can it be carried over to January? Not really. It's not sustainable. Can it be carried over to the spring and summer? Not really. It's not sustainable. Similar to those going through the challenge week. We're going to go back to our usual training after some recovery. That will require a shift back to the athlete we were before the challenge week and the difficulties that come with that because you want to say to yourself, well, I'm capable of so much more. Look, look what I did. But that doesn't mean we can sustain that. We can't carry that over. We do want to avoid injury. We want to return to the progression of being a long-term healthy athlete that is going to have to race and achieve the desired outcomes that we have said we want to achieve because we've had this big week and we add that to our library, our toolbox of physical and mental capacity, we are for sure better athletes. And when the next simulation or a challenging week comes or the event actually comes, we can apply that. But letting go, the ability of letting go of fitness becomes the next obstacle to overcome. Same thing for me after this coast ride. It's not like I'm going to take this fitness and carry it to January's coast ride. It's not sustainable. I can't ride 100 mile rides every weekend or multiple times a week in order to maintain the fitness of an 800 mile week into January. Just not a reality. So instead, it's about what is my phase of training? What am I supposed to be doing now so that my future self my future athlete self, my future outcomes, person I want to be at the finish line of future event will thank me that I'm doing now, right? I call that, well, we've talked about that, that the future self and how to start living that future self now. But then a different way to describe that is future past. I heard that term being used the other day, future past. And by that what was meant is that by your actions today in the future will be what you lean back upon, look back upon, pull and source from what is today. You are creating your future past 
with your actions today, with your experiences today, with your diligence and perseverance today? What in the future am I going to draw upon? What experiences, what lessons, what growth, what memorable moments, what reinforcements can I draw upon in the future that I'm doing today that will help that future self, future athlete, future father, future version of myself, future leader, all those things. What am I doing today that I will draw upon in the future where I'm shaping past experiences that will be drawn upon? And those past experiences start today. The ability to let go of fitness. Many of my athletes will move into a new phase of training from this. Others will continue on their progression. Depends on who they are, what they're getting ready for, their history in the sport, their um, success with the challenge week and so forth. It, it depends on everybody. Many are in a preseason strength phase because we're taking a break from swim, bike, run and doing purely strength work five days a week, letting the body exhale from the motions of swimming and biking and running and focus primarily on strength. Some of the blind spots that come up. The fun of that is that you learn from listening to your body. Wow, I am surprised how sore I am in my glutes. Everything else, I'm handling this strength training fine, but man, my glutes. So something's going on there. There's a weakness. There's a resistance there that we need to lean into and strengthen. We don't want to strengthen the resistance. We want to avoid or not avoid. That's definitely the wrong term. We want to work with that resistance to make us stronger. Others are going to continue back to their progression. And from that, with the confidence of the coach ride, with the confidence of the challenge week, know that they're on the right path and maybe do it better, stronger, smarter, but yet the shorter version or less volume, but make it count differently because of this newfound confidence, this newfound growth, this newfound learning. Athletes might even adjust their future goals from this challenge week. So letting go of fitness and returning to normal is important. Returning to work, right? This week, asking a lot of athletes to put things on hold or having lined up their week. So a couple of days off of training will allow them to catch up on the other aspects of their life so that when we return to the regular training low, um, I'm sorry, I was ready to say regularly scheduled programming like a TV channel. When we return to their regularly scheduled training load and progression, everything is back in order. I'm not saying balance, but back in order. The legs of the stool are doing what they need to be doing. Now, this challenge week, huge, huge extension of the leg of the stool that's our athletic self for sure. And maybe next week, the family or professional or both legs of those stool, stools get a lot more focus and the athletic leg of the stool practically disappears. Doesn't fall over, but it gets a lot shorter. Using the legs of the stool to recalibrate, taking a week to recalibrate that when we kick out of this, we can return to what the stool, how it remains in balance. Important is, is that we don't keep the leg of the stool that long. Another reason why we have to let go of the fitness. 
because it's not sustainable when the athletic leg of the stool is that long. We're burning some serious bridges. We're hurting that stool dramatically if family and professional life that le those legs of the stool remain that short. You will not be an endurance athlete for long, or you will be, but alone, or in a very negative space. And we don't want that. We want sustainable. We want healthy. In order to be our best version of ourselves, we want all aspects of those versions. The athletic version, professional version, the community version, the family version, the husband-wife version to all be part of a balanced, holistic approach. All right. Well, over the last few weeks, I've had a few emails come in. And I wanted to dive into some of them. Some of them have some very difficult questions that I might not, or I'm pretty sure I don't have the answer for, but I wanted to share the observations of them and the thoughts around them. Hi, Chris. I just came back from a half marathon trail race and had a terrible experience. I've been trail racing for a few years now and had some success. This is the second time I have encountered this problem that causes me to do poorly and I cannot decipher it. I thought maybe you can help. My issue is regarding heart rate. A minute into the race, I was up to zone four and it never came down. I ended up spending over one hour and 15 minutes in zone five. You helped me set zones last week. Naturally, by mile seven, I had to slow down. Looking at the pace, elevation profile. This is the type of terrain I am very much accounted to. I would think he's meaning familiar with. In training, I can produce this result with barely touching zone four. How is it possible that my heart was responding this way? This is the second race it has happened to me, and I'm worried I don't have an answer. The only difference is when I race, I take a caffeine gel 15 minutes before the start. I don't drink coffee, but I have been doing the caffeine during the last year's races and did not have this issue. I'm so buffeted by this. I simply cannot produce the speeds and efforts that I know I can do without too much trouble. It is just insane. All right. Well, again, I don't know all the inputs on this, but I will share and try to give as much advice as I can, as if this were me as if you were one of my athletes, or as if I am standing on the sidelines talking to you as one of my athletes. So the first thing that comes up is I helped you set those zones last week. Those zones might be something you have not trained and gotten familiar with and the, the body knows what to do with. I'm a very strong believer that the body learns the zones and the different changes and speeds regarding those zones. And so from there, I believe they require time to be truly absorbed by the body. Absorbed meaning that it, it can work within each zone and that there's a corresponding pace and sensation and learning from it. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say for a half marathon, um, yes, a half marathon trail race, I would not look at heart rate. I am a big proponent for all my athletes, for myself and anybody I talk to that for racing is no longer the time to be using a heart rate monitor. 
The only time I would recommend using a heart rate monitor is for an athlete that has a tendency to be disconnected for, with what the pace, easy, or controlled should feel like and what they're actually doing, meaning that it's a governor a speedometer, something to set themselves um, without blowing up. So you, if you have experience with racing, I would not wear a heart rate monitor. Those numbers, those values, that nervousness, that adrenaline has a tendency to spike heart rates. I would not look at, I don't wear a heart rate monitor for anything shorter. I would not look at a heart rate monitor for anything shorter. At one point, would I use a heart rate monitor? Probably once I'm going half Ironman and beyond. Probably once I'm going marathon and beyond. Probably when I'm going something more than a couple of hours. Because again, I want to ensure and this is for me where I seem to have a good sense of my heart rate zones as well as um, intensity levels according to them or not taking out efforts too strongly, having a healthy fear, resistance, a healthy ability to start easy and maintain a balanced output. Once you go into the longer distances, that's where I would want that governor, that input. And again, heart rate is an input it doesn't dictate what we do whether in training unless it's a specific prescription but in training on longer days it's again it's an input to help us make better decisions it's not the decision in training i'm looking at heart rate along with feel rpe right feel and then maybe pace or watts. And how am I triangulating? I'm looking at that and going, am I aligned? Does this make sense? Is what I'm feeling versus what my heart is telling me versus what the true output is? Are they somewhat in balance? Or if not, what could be causing that? Fuel, hydration, nervousness, rest, fatigue, you know, lack of sleep, um, overeating, the, um, too big of a breakfast, feeling lethargic, right? There's so many inputs as to why it could be happening. But again, it doesn't dictate my pace or my outcome with regards to the training. Now, if it says stay in zone four, well, well then my focus is, all right, this is what zone four feels like. This is what the heart rate is telling me. And this is the pace it's giving me. So therefore, I am executing this training correctly. If one of the three are off, I still stick to the zone, but I start managing, massaging, working around why it is that one of the three are off. But again, it will not limit my ability to train, and it surely shouldn't limit your ability to race. So for something shorter, I would not be wearing a heart rate monitor. Lastly, that caffeine could could have a huge impact on you. There are definitely people who have where the caffeine has a dramatic response, even a small amount. And then there's this people who can take a ton of caffeine and fall asleep. We are all unique animals and individuals. And so what works for you and how it's been working is something we're constantly looking at and might need adjustment. People have constantly um, told me stories and have issues around fueling or hydration. I've got a great gut. I can eat anything until they can't.
I used to need this many calories and I'd feel great on that. And now it feels like I'm full and bloated and can barely race. See, you need to adjust and change that strategy. We're constantly evolving, changing, developing, hence also why we're training. And then we might need to make changes. We might need to throw the whole plan out the window and start a new plan. Yeah, this is not something that's unfamiliar, that this would happen in a trail race or any half marathon race and being too stuck to heart rate zones. So how would I have gone about it instead? My issue is regarding heart rate. A minute into the race, I was up to zone four and never came down. Sure, when the gun goes off and the adrenaline is going and the heart rate is racing and it's a half marathon, of course it's going to jump to zone four, right? So could you have started easier and watched and and sort of given yourself a strategy of saying the first 15 minutes of the event, I'm going to keep it easier. And then the remaining time, I'm going to run steady. Um, I don't know. Um, I ended up spending over one hour and 15 minutes in zone five. Now, that's relative. We don't know if you're able to stay in zone five for an hour and 15 minutes or longer. Is it a mental question? Is it a physical question? Don't know. We just set the zones last week, right? You haven't trained in the zones. I don't think a 400 meter runner or a 5,000 meter runner or a 10K runner is looking at their heart rate while they're running around the track. They're familiar with what they're capable of and then they do it. And racing is not this time to start staring at a heart rate monitor. Naturally, by mile seven, I had to slow down. Did you? Were you fueled? Were you hydrated? How long did seven miles take you? If seven miles, let's say you're running, it's a trail race, so maybe that's eight or nine or 10 minute miles, you're an hour into your event. You need fuel and hydration by that time. Maybe that was the cause. Looking at the pace and elevation profile, this is the type of terrain that I'm very much familiar with or counted to. Okay, that's great, but you might be extremely trained for that terrain, but if you're not fueling yourself, don't know. In in training, I can produce this result with barely touching zone four. Yeah, adrenaline, nerves, effort level, even just that first two, three, four, five minutes. Yeah, it's not surprising to me. Relaxed, less pressure, no expectations. We can just flow and let the legs do the work and breathe properly and relaxed. How is it possible that my heart rate was responded this way? Don't know. This is the second race it's happened to me and I'm worried that I don't have an answer. One is to not look at heart rate monitor and just not overthink it and trust in your training and exhale and maybe do some meditation, mindfulness, breathing prior, set your strategy for the race and go from there and execute on that strategy, excuse me, not just go from there, but execute on that strategy and then use that as part of your learning and growth so that the next race, you might be able to push it further, harder in a different strategy. The only difference is that when I race, I take in a caffeine gel 15 minutes before the start. I don't drink coffee. So adding caffeine to that will have some heart rate aspects. We all know that, that caffeine affects heart rate. 
That, along with the adrenaline, with the nerves of the race, and maybe starting off aggressively, which you often don't in training. We In training, we tend to start controlled or easy or even too easy and build into said training, distance, interval, repeat, whatever, um, and seem to do better. So it might be something you want to train for in the future that you set yourself on a workout to say it's a 10 mile uh, for time running, right? Many of my athletes have that, especially those getting ready for trail races. I have them do 10 Ks for time, 15 Ks for time, 21 Ks for time. Why? Because I want that nervousness. I want that testing, addressing that obstacle. I want them approaching that workout with intrepidation, with nerves, with a fear of um, that there's going to be a number at the far end of that. It all is part of the training. It's training you for event day. That's the way I would approach this. I'm sorry how this happened. I think you know um, below the shoulders that you're capable of running a lot faster. I think above the shoulders, there might be some obstacles you're presenting and adding to that does not allow your body to do what it can do. Um, so keep those, all those factors in mind as you're racing. I hope that helps. All right. Uh, so 2020, the next email, sorry. Uh, so 2020 is a strange year and with so many events canceled, planning for 2021. Um, this is from Lazar in Serbia. Um, and even planning for 2022. It has become even wilder, at least in my case, but I would think that resonates with other people too. So my plan for 2021 involves one half Ironman, an Attilo swim run, and maybe a couple of not so long trail runs. But what is presenting itself for 2022 is a 100 mile Istra run, those are amazing, yes. And compared to all other events that I did up to this point, that one really seems out of reach, so to speak. I love it. On the far edge of what we deem possible. The one where good research seems like a necessity, and so my mind immediately went towards you and your podcast. Thank you. I learned and heard a ton of stuff here, but I always wanted to ask you for some actual recommendations in terms of coaching, endurance sports, nutrition, and hydration books, literature, and maybe other types of content that you are most amazed about, or maybe from which you have learned the most, the a more and more specific good way to educate yourself in terms of running 100k trails, 100 miles trails, would really like to read something that also helped you a lot along your way in becoming a person and athlete that you are today. Thank you from Serbia. Best wishes, Lazar. So thank you for the email and thank you for the questions. This is actually an area that I get a lot of questions about. I appreciate them, but I have a very boring set of answers. And I don't read much about 
sports, about physiology, about training, about how to go about it. It's not something I find interesting or is something that keeps me reading the book. We've all been in books where we're sort of just sort of reading it to read it because we started it, but not because really we're interested in what we're reading. I grew up in sports. I grew up in physiology and exercise physiology. I grew up with coaches taking care of me, but being really good communicators and explaining why and what's happening, as well as picking up a lot of this along the way over the years. So there aren't any type of books I've ever read about trail running. I would say the closest I've come is Born to Run, but I would not recommend reading that book for the purposes of training. It's a great story, but there's not much training in it. It truly is a story, a narrative, a fictional story um, around factual people and events. Um, Other things I read are more around mindset and psychology and some of the classics. I like to read a fair amount of stoicism. I like to read a a fair amount of sports psychology. I like to read a fair amount of endurance stories, anywhere from the book Endurance um, or Endure by, by Shackleton and his journey to the South Pole or, I mean, even Endurance by <laughs> Alex Hutchinson. It's a great book. They cross over a fair amount. But that's those are the things I like to read. Um, Flow um, by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Um, things where it takes the years of doing athletics the way I have been with swim and bike and run and triathlon and trail running and having done this for 45 years as an active high-level participant and being surrounded by some incredible people that have taught me along the way but also being fortunate enough to learn early enough in my swimming career to pay attention to what I'm doing and listening to my body and listening to my mind and working with that and realizing many years later that that was actually a positive attribute versus what I used to think was I was too much in my head, um, that it was a negative attribute, and that there was actually a lot happening there. That's the stuff I'm a fortunate of, but also why I don't like to read about it anymore, because I really like to stay away from the specificity of these topics and applied in a bigger picture because again i believe human development versus athletic development is where i want to be as well as i would love to carry that over to my athletes that means that yes doing a 100k trail race and a 100 mile trail race is amazing but what you learn from that applies to the bigger picture not just to the athletic world. And so what I'm always looking to read and spend my time reading is how to pull the nuggets from the athletic world, physical and mental, and apply them in the bigger picture of the overall version of ourselves in our human development, in our human growth, as well as our own society and community and workplace and family, and quite honestly, making the world in a small little way with our endurance knowledge, a better place. 
So what am I currently reading? Things like um, Deep Work by Cal Newport. I'm, I'm just finishing that. Um, Ego is the Enemy in Ryan Holiday. I'm also reading that currently. Um, what else am I reading? Uh, there's a few books <laughs> I've just been working through. But you can see none of them are specific to the point of training. They're more big picture. I'm just looking up on my bookshelf to see if there's anything that's very specific to training. Sure, I have a book on sports nutrition, but I don't use that anymore because I talk to Emily. Um, I do have a book on lactate threshold training, but those concepts, quite honestly, and not to sound pompous or full of myself, are just too simple um, and apply too much to the general masses versus endurance athletes and the specifics of being a master's athlete, meaning we went pro in something other than the sport we're doing, and how to maximize the limited training time we have and continue to foster growth in endurance athletics despite having limited time, despite not having the 20 hours a week to train for despite the obstacles of work and family in the way and how to craft a meaningful progression in training within that space. There's not a lot of books in that field, I shouldn't say, um, because you can take the principles of those books of general sports physiology and exercise physiology and apply them to your limited training time for sure. But I find it's more important to learn to listen to our body, to learn to what the progression means, to not be so technical with it because then we tend to overtrain. I just had a consultation the other day with an athlete and I told him, listen, when you're doing your training plan, because I don't do it for the people that I get a consult, I give them the outline. I said, I said to him, don't, if, if it looks too linear, if your progression looks too linear and too smooth and too steady, you're doing it wrong. It can't be like that. Otherwise, A, you're either a pro athlete and you've really built in the recovery properly. And then it doesn't, it still doesn't look like a linear line. It looks like something different. It looks a little bit more choppy because you are listening to your body and you give yourself the recovery weeks and the load weeks and the stress and adaptation time in different formats versus just a straight line. So that's important in what you're reading. So it's hard. I would say much of the general information can be found online. Quite honestly, a typical 100K training plan, a typical 100-mile training plan, a typical half-marathon training plan, a marathon training plan, those are all good outlines, scaffolding for your training, and then taking it down to the detail of you, you personally, what you have time for, where you need to work, where your limiters are, where you can strengthen your strengths, um, and keeping in mind longevity in the sport and how you want to remain with this. That I would feel, I would recommend is the best approach. Um, yeah, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, just finishing that. Before that, I, oh, really good. I revisited Zen and the Art of Archery. That was wonderful to revisit. I read it many years ago. I also finished Willpower. Um, that was a good book. Um, I enjoyed that. But yeah, as you can see, most of these are sort of more mindset, big picture approach to coaching and to what I'm looking to convey to my athletes. So 
I hope that helps. Oh, by the way, that was just um, audible books. Um, I've got to think of what's on my nightstand upstairs. <laughs> um, I definitely am finishing Ego is the Enemy. That was good. And I'm looking forward to Ryan Holiday's new book, which I've, I've ready to be read. Next. All right. Hi, Chris. This one's from Matthew. I really enjoy listening to your podcast on long runs for motivation and training ideas. I'm sorry if you've covered this before, but I'm working. No, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on using heart rate. I'm using a heart rate drift test from the uphill athlete website to find the aerobic threshold top of zone two. Do you think this works as well as the five by one mile test? I'm hesitant to do that much speed work, if one can call it that, since in the past I've developed niggles from speed work. I know I need to work on that too, but in the meantime, is a heart rate drift a good substitute? Thought this might make a good question for the podcast. Well, first off, I should describe what a heart rate drift test is. And it's a, a commonly used type of test called decoupling um, in a lot of cases. And I'll explain what that means in a moment according to my coaching philosophy versus what let's say Training Peaks uses. And they actually have a formula in Training Peaks to use a heart rate drift test. But basically after you warm up and your heart rate steadies two, three, four, five minutes, um, depends on uh, how long your warm up is, you run for about an hour at what you feel like is your goal, not go all day pace, but your aerobic pace. So middle of zone two, what you feel you can do conversationally, what let's say you could feel like you could run right now for two-ish hours, two, three hours, but you run it for 60 minutes and you gab that data. Um, and from there, based off of formulas, um, you can put it into training peaks, same thing, it will um, pump out a percentage. And the formula gives you a percentage of what your heart rate drift percentage is. And from that, you subtract percentages and set those at your as your zones, or determine your zones from those numbers. Let's say if your heart rate drift is greater than 5%, that means you're probably running too fast and you have to start slower for the next test in order to get a better understanding of your zones. But it, the problem with, and this is partially answering the question, is it's a very arbitrary number, right? You're, aerobic, you're determining the input, which you are on the five by one mile test as well the range of the number could be quite dramatic. It changes from day to day. Okay, so let's say you do it rested like the five by one mile test where you have at least a rest day. It ties into your overall fitness and this is the main key point and I'll explain that in a moment. So because your cho chosen pace of 60 minutes can fluctuate so dramatically, right? 60 minutes is a long time to determine a pace right now that I want to hold. And so those those values, so for those 60 minutes, you're supposed to keep it within what you think is your heart rate for, let's say a two, three hour run, you are supposed to keep it right, pretty tight to that for the full hour. We tend to get antsy, we tend to get impatient, and we tend to lose attention <laughs> on that number, or also our confidence in that number over 60 minutes. And so it becomes an arbitrary test, not as exact as I'd like to it. The reason I like the five by one is it's one mile, run your best 
It's a best effort 10K pace, which is six miles, right? But you have a minute in between each mile to recover and then put forth another 95% effort, 10K effort mile. It's something your brain and your body can connect to better and then recalibrate with that minute rest and do three, four, five more times. Well, four more times after the recalibration since you're doing five by one miles. That's why I also like to say to athletes, I would rather you blow up. I'd rather you give me a blow up at mile four or three and a half or five because that also has data in it. It's a short, compact window of data that I can then use. But 60 minutes is a long time off of a number that's not very specific. And neither is the five by one mile test. It's not a specific number, but the one mile increments are more specific. You can say to yourself, what's 95% effort? Agreed, that's also arbitrary, but it's a short, measurable, attention capturing window. And then I'll give myself a minute. And then in that minute, I'll ask myself, was that 95%? Can I go harder? Or was that just right? Rarely do they say I have to slow down. Um, I'd rather you maintain it. So we get five one mile data versus 60 minutes. So that's why I'm more of a fan of the five by one mile because I can ask the athlete to really capture focused small tidbits of data versus 60 minutes, which I already explained why that's um, hard to hold and do. Decoupling. Decoupling, I actually see a little bit different. I see on the bike as well as running, it's harder to do swimming because of the oxygen aspect, that when there's a decoupling, heart rate rises, wattage stays steady on the bike, for example. Heart rate rises, wattage stays steady on the run, uh, pace stays steady on the run. I call that decoupling an inflection point of fitness or fuel and hydration. And so to use my words to describe what you would see visually on a chart, imagine a flat line of heart rate. And in the beginning, the first 30, 40, 50 minutes, hour and a half, two hours, three hours on the bike, the heart rate and the wattage are pretty much in sync. They move together. Wattage goes up, heart rate goes up. Wattage goes down, heart rate goes down. You know, you're on a climb, wattage goes up, heart rate goes up. You're coming down the climb, wattage goes down, heart rate goes down. So the two are somewhat synchronous as they move through the ride. And then later in the ride, the two drift apart. Heart rate drift to me and the way I coach that's an inflection point of fitness. That means at this point, the two, the correlation between the two separated because we ran out of fitness. I guarantee you that if you ride super easy, run super easy, that that correlation stays together in sync longer. So it's to me, Again, I'm not saying my way is the right way. This is just how I coach and what I use. That's a sign of fitness. And it's an easy way for athletes to wrap their mind around it to see it too. Or also when they're two hours into a run and seeing their heart rate rise, they're running out of fitness. Steady pace, right? We said the same thing. Now, Chris, you could. what about when heart rate falls? When heart rate falls, 
that is usually a hydration and a fueling question that the body is starting to run out of glycogen, run out of hydration, and it's crashing in that direction. Again, if you're well-fueled, if you're rested, if you're properly adapting to the stress of training, you should be able to go on a three, four, five hour ride. Again, once you're trained for this, this is just, or a three hour ride and the heart rate should not decouple. You should be able to maintain, again, this is on the premise of an aerobic output, right? I forgot to say that the heart rate drift test, the decoupling and the training principle that I'm talking about are all based off of aerobic middle of zone two type of, you know, I can go twice the distance based off of my fitness sensations and how I'm starting this effort. That's what the fee it should start like. So if you're going on a two hour bike ride and you start with an effort as if you're going on a four hour bike ride, that's what you should maintain for the two hours. If that's what you're starting at and it feels right, it should not decouple. If I'm going on a one hour run or a 90 minute run, I should start at an effort as if I'm going for a two, three hour run. And if that feels right after 20 minutes, 15 minutes, hold that, I should not decouple. So it's a different way of looking at the data. To me, that's a point where you run out of fitness. Now, uphill athlete and training peaks comes at it from a different angle. They're saying that if you started easier, that decoupling wouldn't have happened. And therefore you need to adjust your zone so that that becomes what they determine then is then the new zone too. I'm saying similar, but I'm using the data differently. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it sounds a little confusing. So to me, decoupling heart rate drift, when it really disattaches from that synchronicity it was in, that's our training fatigue. And because I use data and heart rate zones based off of the testing, whether a bike test, field test, or run field test, or a bike lactate threshold test, or a run lactate threshold test in other times, <laughs> pre-pandemic, I don't need to go about the zones that way, but I can determine fitness that way. And I can show the athlete the next time they, a month or two later, when they do a four hour ride and they start at the same wattage or they start, then they can see the decoupling happens later in their bike ride or in their run and therefore fitness has improved i hope that helps let me just double check on the email um cover this one i'm wondering what your thoughts are on using heart rate drift test yeah can you use it great it's another way of gathering data and information in order to continue to triangulate what you need to determine a your zones and your training what your blind spots are and how you can improve do you think this works as well as the five by one mile test personally with ex my experience i don't think it works as well because what i already explained with the shorter time increments and getting more valuable detailed data i'm hes i'm hesitant to do that much speed work I need, I need to work on that too. But in the meantime, is hard rate drifting. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. You are saying that much speed work from my five by one mile test. Correct. Okay, yes. Could it be a good substitute? I don't know. I haven't done enough of them, whether myself or with my athletes. 
I've, I have tons of heart rate drift data, but I don't put it into a zone calculation. So I'm sorry, I can't answer that. Now, the other thing for you to consider is that one mile test. Yes, it is speed work, but it should leave you achy and sore and unfamiliar and uncomfortable because it is not the type of training we typically do. That's why it's valuable information. And you will need to take a couple days off or easy post that test. Think of it this way. Is the pounding on the body of an hour run or a five or a 45 minute pounding at higher intensity? That's the way you have to evaluate it. And if you get niggles from that, Yes, you definitely need to work on speed um, relatively, right? Relative, as you wrote, if one can call it that. I would also encourage you, if it is that challenging for you to do speed work, incorporate a lot of strides into your training. And if you need help with what strides are, they're all over the internet, but basically 30, 30, 30 yards, start steady run fast and strong and finish best after effort. So you're basically finishing 30 yards at best effort, but take a look at them on YouTube and on the internets, on the interwebs, and you will see plenty of good descriptions of strides. If you need them um, and you want my description, send me an email and I will send it to you. I hope that answered that. All right. That's it for our emails this week. And that's it for the Weekly Word podcast this week. I really want to thank all of you for your listening, for your patience with me. And I really try to capture what this podcast is with that opening today. Um, I rewrote it because it really, I really wanted to verbalize why it is I do this podcast why it means so much to me, why I hope to add value. I don't need to just hear myself talk. What I'm trying to do for all of us is inspire health and fitness and the longevity and the benefits it brings. But I think it's even more important to inspire health and fitness through endurance athletics. I'm a strong believer that we are born endurance athletes. That's our primal mammalian old brain, lizard brain, truly where we come from. And I think what it does when we're doing it, applying it, living it, breathing it, feeling it in our bodies, physically, as well as mentally and spiritually is incredibly powerful. And I've felt it for years and I've seen it being felt in many, many, many hundreds of athletes over the last 20 years of coaching. The sparkle in their eye, the spark in their life from truly understanding and embracing the endurance athlete within them has only improved their life. And I'm not talking in an addictive way where you need to wear compression socks to sleep every night and be in bed by eight. I'm talking about endurance lifestyle and how connecting with that inner self and your primal self, as well as your healthy self, as well as all the signals that the endurance athlete athletics turns on in our body to make us more resilient, healthy, powerful, creative, thoughtful, gracious, connected with nature and humans and the environment, our strength within us that we then want to bring out in others, our self-care giving us energy to care for others, our 
being immersed in nature, bringing out the want in us to take care of nature in order for us to continue to bring out our best in nature. All those aspects tie in very closely to the endurance athlete within all of us. And like many of you have heard, when you see those posters on the wall at REI or your those screensavers on the Apple computer that are there with scenes of nature and what that sparks within us and that subconscious reaction we have to it, I believe 100% that that is our true self, the endurance athlete within all of us in the DNA of all of us that it is igniting that curiosity of what life is like out there. That's the Weekly Word Podcast this week, you guys. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking to you guys next week. Have a great week, everybody. Stay healthy, stay fit, stay safe, and stay connected with that endurance athlete self.